Tis the season to be triggered. Uh, and what do I mean by that? There's a lot of... Triggered can mean activating a trauma or a repressed memory, but for the purposes of this talk, I really, I'm going to be using triggered in terms of... Um, we have in our lives adult coping strategies which we use when we are in situations that feel safe, when we're around people that are familiar, when we're at jobs where we feel respected, where we're in uh, settings where we know what's expected of us. And then we all have, due to our histories, a whole set of childhood coping strategies that we use to survive our childhoods. And when we wind up back in a certain settings, those early coping strategies that no longer serve us as well, no longer look as attractive as they did with children, as they do in adults, uh, can be activated. One of the big ones, uh, it will not be the only theme, but one of the big ones is uh, worrying about what other people think about us, which can happen in any setting where we don't feel that secure. And that that worry, trying to maintain how we are regarded by others can be extremely painful because it uses two of the parts of the mind that are most likely to trigger your fear centers in the amygdala. Uh, when you worry about what other people think about you, I mean that's kind of the miracle growth of obsessive thoughts to begin with. You got self and you got speculation. So the two things, like me and things I don't know about, like what other people think about me or what's going to happen to me in the future, they can create an endless amount of obsessive, repetitive thinking. Uh, so um, the, the concern, what do other people think about me, is a hard one to put aside. So why do we worry so? about other people's opinions. Uh, one is we are, of course, pack animals. Human beings have their great survival advantage because we link up so well. And when we wind up feeling isolated, not connected, there are key regions of the right hemisphere which trigger and activate emotional pain. In fact, it's now argued by affect neuroscientists such as Lieberman and Shore and uh, Damasio and others that the, the basic root of all emotions is how well connected we feel to other people and how securely that connection is. So when we suspect that other people are not thinking lovely thoughts about us, when we suspect we're being criticized, judged, evaluated, rejected, uh, not being taken seriously, not being seen, not being regarded, it's extremely painful. The right anterior cingulate activates, and it's the exact same part of your brain that causes physical pain to be known by the rest of your mind, activates when you feel the emotional pain of being separated, rejected, ostracized, not loved. So just in that, it's very painful. The second is that we spend our formative years completely dependent upon caretakers to meet our needs. 
And when it seems that our caretakers are not perceiving us well, uh, it's very threatening to the child. We've all had experiences where we're young when our parents don't approve of our choices. We want to take a class that they don't want us to take. We want to see friends that they don't want us to see. We want to go out and play when they don't want us to play. We want to watch TV when we don't want us to watch TV, etc., etc. And when we feel our choices, our needs, our desires, our goals are not approved of, then we experience uh, a sense of deprivation, a sense of uh, abandonment that can be extremely painful, especially when it's the parents withhold empathy or attunement, when they stop looking, when they stop mirroring our emotions. So the third is finally that um, we have what's called the imago. We internalize our parents as we move through life to give us a kind of regulating tool. That's your inner critic you hear in your mind. If you haven't heard it, I'm surprised. It's that voice that tells you you're not accomplishing enough, that you should have done more with your life, that you're making mistakes, you should have done something else, you should be less needy, you should be more this, you shouldn't be the other thing. And in certain settings when people, events are seen critical, it validates that inner voice that we carry around and makes it seem even more true and even more valid. So we might be able to walk around with just enough tools in our day-to-day life that when that inner critic fires up in the mind and says that we're not, we should have, our lives are not amounting to what it should be or we should be the Buddha when we meditate or we should be endlessly compassionate or we should never have fear or anxiety. When somebody else gives you a strange look or seems to be criticizing us, it can validate that inner critic and make that inner critic seem to be even more natural and true. So all of those three reasons make it extremely painful to be in um, you know, situations where we feel criticized, judged. And the more, one, the more vulnerable we are in the setting, the more likely we are to be triggered or activated. And two, the more stress we have in our lives, the more obligations, stressors like financial difficulties, uh, breakups, uh, challenges with uh, roommates, etc. You know what stressors are. If you have a lot of stressors or if you're in a situation where you feel vulnerable, like you're you know, meeting new people for the first time, you're going to a party where you don't know anyone, you're going to uh, a, a reunion where you don't know people, you're, whatever. If you're in a vulnerable situation or there's a lot of stress, then criticism, distance, evaluation, not feeling welcomed can be exceptionally... Uh, difficult to bear. Now the child can't protect itself like adults can. When we're children, uh, we can't establish secure boundaries and say, you know what, I'm not feeling that comfortable here. I'm out of here. Thanks mom and dad, but I'll come back in a 
a few months when you get your empathy act together and can sustain meaningful attunement to me. Um, children can't walk away from the situation, can't say, you know what, enough of this topic. You know, I'm tired of validating my choices, or, you know what, I'm going to stop right now and call my therapist. Um, or let's investigate the motives of why you're asking me these questions, shall we? <laughs> so what happens is because children don't have the tools that adult ha adults have to establish secure boundaries in challenging situations where we don't know people, where we feel the possibility of uh, vulnerability, what children develop are emotional beliefs because largely we spend the first five years of life in the right hemisphere, in the emotional mind, not the logical left. And so we develop beliefs. What are these beliefs? Uh, one, I have to take care of what people think about me and manage what people think about me. Two, I have to justify my choices to every adult. Three, I have to dodge conflicts that rather than face anything that could mean disapproval. And we develop what's known as coping strategies that are maladaptive. That they're adapted for children and they make total sense that we have them as children because children are disempowered. So they require using extreme coping strategies to survive. So what are those? I off the top of my head, preparing for the talk, just put out six. I'm sure there are many more. But when we feel cornered, trapped, put upon, judged, uh, unloved, the child might, one, dissociate, which means shut down, go into a fantasy realm, stop taking in the stimuli that's happening around, around us. Two, seek attention by acting out. If the child feels it's not getting secure attention, it might become louder, more repetitive, might tell the same story five or six times, might seek attention by making a lot of noise. And as adults, when we are regressing due to being triggered, we might drink a lot and start acting impulsively. Three, there's the secret urge to punish fantasies of getting back, harming, injuring, criticizing, yelling. In my head, I said, and sometimes when we tell the stories of, of difficult experiences, in telling the story, we sort of can make it seem like we actually said these things, these punishing things, when in fact we didn't. And I was all, well, but off. Did you say that? Well, no, but I thought it. <laughs> Four is fantasies of running away, one of the major. I used to run away from my parents on a regular basis. I'd go to see New York realist films with Al Pacino as a kid. Dog Day Afternoon, Panic in Needle Park. I don't know why. I just, it for somehow felt reassuring to escape the drama of my family with the drama of Al Pacino films. Uh, five, uh, keeping score of the attention that other siblings get. Why does she get to have whatever dessert she wants? Why does she get to not have to practice the violin? Why does she get the blah, 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 or he? And then there's, of course, avoiding. The child will hide or avoid any 
uncomfortable subject <laughs> from the parents rather than say, oh, I've, I got an F in this class or I got kicked out of, I got suspended in school or I lost my retainer or, these are all personal examples. <laughs> so, um, <coughs> those are the ones that hopped to mind from my childhood. So all of those things, guess what, they don't go away. They're deeply embedded as, as survival strategies in the right hemisphere. And in certain situations, the more vulnerable, the more stressed we are, the more likely the triggers are going to not be met with adult survival strategies like backing away, finding a secure distance, having boundaries, etc. We'll go into them. Uh, but what we'll do is we'll try to escape We'll try to avoid difficult subjects rather than simply say, hey, by the way, family, I quit my job. I'm taking time off and doing whatever the hell I want to do. We will dissociate, start shutting out the stimuli of the parents or the people around us that are triggering. We will seek attention by acting out, desperately trying to get positive attention or fantasize about running away or punishing the people that seem to be judging us. So you get the idea. Uh, the more vulnerable we tend to go back to these coping strategies because they're stored in the right hemisphere of the brain. And um, what happens very often in adult life is when people have their own children, they find themselves acting out some of the same traumatic experiences to their own children that happened to them, and so these coping strategies can be passed down through generations and generations. Um, so these impulses almost invariably will express themselves first through the body and then through your thoughts. You will, before you have the Emotion, the mental idea of running away, hiding, not going to the family gathering, not going to the holiday party, not going to the uh, place you've been invited, not going to the vulnerable situation. You'll first feel, if you observe closely in the body, your body will get tense, your shoulders will get tense, because your emotional mind, when it's activated, first speaks through the body. Then the, the mind seeing that we're stressed out, that we are caught up in fear, starts then providing the tools to survive, which are all of these maladaptive coping strategies. And it doesn't have to be only family. We can project vulnerability onto just about anyone. We can be triggered by bosses, by people we're in creative endeavors with, by coworkers, by roommates, especially Guess who will be the most triggering in your life if you're in a relationship? Voila, bingo, them. Your maladaptive coping styles will come out the most when you are in a vulnerable relationship, which are all romantic relationships, because those are the relationships where we feel the most vulnerable. We don't know how we're being evaluated. We don't know... Well, there's the fear at any moment of being abandoned or rejected or dumped or uh, being, on the other hand, if you have engulfment fears, then the fears as being swamped, consumed, controlled, indebted. Uh, so, 
Um, I think you get the idea. But the next question has become, how do we update the emotional mind, give it tools so that it won't be activated? Um, <coughs> and that's the second part of tonight's talk, which is really, uh, it's in our lives, we live in bifurcated minds. We have the rational, which we are conscious in, and the rational knows that it's 2015, it's Thanksgiving, that we're adults, that we have our own apartments to go to, that we can leave. But I guarantee you, if you're in a vulnerable situation where you show up for some kind of social um, gathering, where you don't feel safe, your emotional mind will kick in, and it doesn't know that it's 2015. All it knows are the traumatic experiences that have happened and the core survival tools and expectations based on those traumatic experiences. So it's up to us as adults to slowly and patiently show the emotional mind each time that we are far safer than it believes. Because if we don't, we will set ourselves up to be triggered when we return or go into situations that we don't know people, or we don't know how we're going to be evaluated, etc., etc. So the first is to drink in the secure facts of your life. Which means, don't tell yourself, hey, I'm an adult, I can leave any time, because your right hemisphere doesn't understand thinking. Your right hemisphere, your emotional mind, needs to be literally shown. Oh, visualize yourself leaving. Visualize the gathering coming to a close. Visualize yourself back in your apartment before you go in. Visualize the friends that you have that are supportive visualize and hold in the mind for 15 seconds because it takes that long for a image to sink into the emotional mind if it's positive. Uh, just drink in the positive facts of your life, the secure facts. The people who are loving, the, they, the people who respect you, they, uh, the places you go where people will be kind. Now, the second is the most difficult, and probably I didn't put it first, because if I put the most difficult one first, you'd all go, ah, oh, well, I don't want to have anything to do with this list. It's too difficult. This is the most difficult one, uh, which is, if there's been a history of conflict or tension, to acknowledge it, but don't try to solve it right then and there. There's nothing more um, stress-inducing than trying to not talk about the fact that the last time you saw these people, they got drunk and naked and vomited, or <laughs> there was a screaming fight, or there was a feeling of anger over the way they, a disagreement, or that you haven't talked with these people in seven years. And people, in my experience, I've been working with people now for 20 years, 10 as a Buddhist teacher. It's amazing how big the elephants in the room 
or you might call them gorillas in the room, how big and huge they can be without people acknowledging. And families, families can be amazing structures where really, really tense events can go completely unacknowledged. And as um, it's been demonstrated again and again, not just by Bowen, but um, by other psychologists, if we don't simply say, oh, it's nice to be here, you know, um, I'm glad that we're together, you know, and working through. The uh, last time I was here, it was a little awkward, so I felt a little awkward about coming. You can be creative how you acknowledge, but the trying to wipe something under the, the, the rug actually backfires severely. When people don't acknowledge conflict, what happens is it spreads completely everywhere in the emotional mind. What happens is, if we don't acknowledge that there's been a big fight, a flare-up, a tension, a conflict, a disappointment, then what happens is we become suspicious, guarded, and very easily triggered throughout all the conversations. And there's this underlying edge where everybody is trying to perform and either be nice or be defensive, but they're not being authentic. And the entire purpose of getting together is lost, and the entire safety of getting together is disrupted. So what we need is to, in some tacit way that feels safe, simply acknowledge that there's, you know, it hasn't always been easy, but we're grateful that each of us are putting in the effort. Um, number three is establish clear boundaries and ground rules for yourself. Taking the time to express your boundaries and ground rules to other people can be... Well, the ground rules are useful, but the boundaries are not necessary. Boundaries are the topics that you are willing to talk about. If you're unwilling to talk about a triggering topic and you know what it is, that's great. I managed to have a wonderful relationship with my father who spent much of the first 12 years of my life a violent drunk. And even after that, a guy who had absolutely no sense of what was appropriate, no matter which job I would take, career choice I would make, it was never good enough. I always, in his mind, should be doing so much better. I should be running companies, you know, I should be doing all the things that he didn't try to do in, in life. And so, um, one of the most wonderful tools that happened in the midst of Buddhist family therapy, which we did for many years, was when the therapist simply said, rather than turn to me for, uh, to, to, to validate how ridiculous your dad is being right now, why don't you simply, when he starts to bring up something that is none of his business, say, I don't want to talk about that. You're an adult. You don't have to talk about what he wants to talk about. Now, when we're triggered and activated, we regress back to early childhood places where we believe that we are obligated to talk about whatever an adult wants us to talk about. So we have to remember, 
oh, I'm an adult. I don't have to justify what I'm doing in my life. I don't have to justify the fact that I'm taking time from work to pursue my art. I don't have to justify that I'm not doing my art and making enough money to pay my rent. Or that I'm, I left this boyfriend or girlfriend to date this girlfriend or boyfriend. We don't have to justify anything when we're an adult, so long as it's, you know, we're not stabbing people in the subway, I suppose. And even that, you don't really bother to justify, you just go hopefully to prison for. But, so throw that one out. So you don't have to justify yourself. Um, on ground rules are simply stating clearly to yourself and probably to the people around you how long you're going to be there when you're going to leave. Uh, if you have specific needs, certain kinds of food you have to eat, certain kinds of uh, breaks you have to take, whatever, just do it. Don't feel the need to be shoulded into staying for seven hours when you only have the emotional capability or wherewithal to withstand three hours of vulnerability. Being shoulded undoes all of the effort that you put in to try to show up for challenging gatherings. Because if you show up for three hours and then leave, it's far better than white-knuckling it for seven hours, being on edge, and undoing all of the spiritual tools and emotional tools that you developed to, be, feel, to feel as an empowered adult. So be clear. If you're only going to stay for four or five hours, if that's your limit, then say that. Don't try to do what you can't do. Um, four, give attention and space for your emotional activations. If you feel angry, if you feel sad, if you feel frightened, if you feel uh, unseen, lonely, whatever, Take a break, go away, find a quiet space, and acknowledge the emotion and feel it. What is the worst thing to do in a social situation is to try to get rid of an emotional state or to try to push it aside and try to be funny and social when you're feeling sad, vulnerable, uh, disempowered. So giving yourself permission to go and... Be with the emotion, observe it, create a safe container for it, and then once you begin to feel it pass, then return. Emotions, when they're not pushed away, when they are greeted, held, observed mindfully, they tend to arise and pass. And I've done this, uh, believe me. <laughs> and uh, when I've taken breaks, when I just feel like, won't these people just go away? Won't they please just go away? I find that that emotion, when I just say, oh, that's aversion, that's just wanting to be, uh, have space, that's just feeling crowded, that's just feeling like too much demands placed on myself. Just feeling those emotions, being with them and allowing them to express themselves, and then they pass pretty quickly. It doesn't mean I have to go away for the rest of the entire evening. Um, this is a pretty fun one, the next one, 
uh, and it can be far more effective than it sounds on paper, which is to constantly check the body that you're in and go into the body of a confident adult. The, the, there's so many studies that show that when we're activated, we go into the childlike, crossing the arms, head over the chest, back sitting in the chair. Um, the body is simply that of somebody who has to protect themselves. The confident adult has their chest open, is leaning forward into a conversation, but is relaxed, their belly is soft, their out-breath is long. So you're there, you're present, and your body is in the body of someone who doesn't feel like they can be pushed around. Uh, I can't remember her name. A wonderful social psychology has a lot of social psychologists have a lot of talks about the work she did with graduate students, and she managed to change their entire social personalities just by adjusting their body posture. So it's a worthwhile tool to keep in mind. Again, the biggest key is the soft belly and the big open chest uh, sitting forward. That tells that the body tells the emotional mind that we're far more secure. And then finally, having in your life a forgiveness practice is, of course, very, very useful. Uh, there's nothing like resentments to make us more triggerable. I don't know if that's a word. But um, how do we forgive? Uh, I, there's all these talks I've given and other great teachers, Tara Brock, Noah, etc., have given on forgiveness. The key is Whatever you're holding a grudge against a certain group or person about, think of one time when you've done the same thing and forgive yourself for it. So, for example, you might uh, have to go to a gathering where there's this person who's very needy and starved for attention, and they get drunk, or they constantly demand that everybody pay attention to them, and I think we all have at least five of those people in our lives <laughs> that absolutely crave attention. And it's important because these are people that are in our lives to be able to drop part of the resentment. And one of the ways we do that is we visualize in our minds times and we've craved and acted out and demanded attention. Um, and forgive ourselves for it. If you can't, if you're really like, I've never done anything <laughs> like that person. I've never been drunk or started shouting or started being demanding everybody pay attention to them. Then think of something else that you feel guilty about and forgive yourself for it. You'll feel better and then forgive them. It'll make them easier to be around. I mean, they'll still be challenging. <laughs> but you'll at least won't go in just waiting for them to, at first, do their shtick. You'll have at least a little bit more of a, a pause button. So, again, drink in the secure facts of our lives, acknowledge the history of conflict, establish boundaries and ground rules, pay attention, acknowledge your emotions in the body, get into the body then of somebody who's secure, and if you have the ability to forgive at least a little bit of the resentments, do so, because all of these practices together will bring you emotionally up to date and allow you to resume using your adult coping strategies rather than revert back to childhood ones. 
I hope there was something of value in tonight's talk. See if we can come to a stop in life. And uh, how do we do that? Well, one way is simply to get the body a little bit in line, which simply means there's that tendency when we're moving forward, busy, or when we're on the laptop for our heads to sort of drift in front of the, the uh, body, for our heads to sort of begin to, like it's trying, we're trying to get ahead of ourselves, we're trying to get somewhere. And so just simply pulling the head back, or a simple way is just looking slightly up, that way the head becomes in line with the body, and if your head's looking up and tilted back, then it's not like we're rushing to get somewhere. And then just from that simple shift, see if you can begin to feel your awareness shifting down into your body. If day-to-day -day awareness is an awareness of trying to get somewhere in the future in front of us. It's like we're always trying to be somewhere else. Then a meditative mind is not trying to get anywhere or do anything. It's just simply trying to become aware of what is present in our lives especially starting with the body. So it's moving awareness down into the body rather than trying to achieve or get any place. And another quality of uh, meditation is creating a frame. If somebody is sitting in the back it just thank you so much. So it's creating a frame, a kind of a foothold, a place to observe in your experience, so that we don't get caught up in all the busyness of the mind and the busyness of the world around us. Busyness of the mind is generally thoughts busyness in the world around us as other people. So how do we find a place that's sturdy enough, that's solid enough, that it can provide a kind of foothold in the world? A sort of a vantage point where we don't get caught up. And that's the body. That's your body the sensations of the breath, the sensations of being in being in a human body. That provides you with the that provides you with all you need to have a safe place to go when all around you people are 
acting unskillfully or when one's thoughts become overwhelming. So let's take a nice long breath through the nose and lift your shoulders up towards your ears if you like. You don't have to, but if you like, just like you're trying to touch the ears with the shoulders and hold, and then as we breathe out through the mouth, just drop them as heavily as they can. And if you like, gently pull your shoulders back to open up your chest. It makes it feel more expansive but only what feels appropriate for you. And the next breath, pulling in the belly, just tightening the belly. Then as we breathe out, soften the belly. And with the third breath, squinching the toes, making fists, squinching the muscles in the face, the buttocks, the legs, anything you want, tighten, and then breathe out, release and just settle into the body. If you want the body to be a, a safe place for you to go in life, the first thing we have to do is make the body comfortable. If the body is uncomfortable, then it's difficult to have that shelter. So. Take a moment and just scan through the sensations that let you know that you have a body and if there's anything at all you'd like to adjust to make yourself feel comfortable, do that. Be indulgent. Be very, very indulgent. If you feel your clothes are too tight, if there's anything you'd like to shift. And so let's find a anchor that we can use to settle the mind. And as I mentioned, the body can be one, just observing the experience of breathing in the body, noting some area of your body when the chest expands and contracts, or the belly expands and contracts with the in-breath and the out-breath. And if you use the breath and the body as an anchor to settle the mind, a good strategy is to count one on the in-breath, two on the out. Three on the next in, four on the next out. When you get to five, back down. Four on the out, three on the in, two on the out. So you're counting from one to five and back down. So another anchor you can use if the body is in pain or you want to develop another tool, is just listen to the sounds. Fortunately, this room is a somewhat loud room in that we hear a lot of different sounds emanating from the street. And actually, for a meditation, that can be useful. 
If you use sounds, just allow them to arrive. Don't go out searching for them. And try not to judge the sounds. Try to simply allow the mind to stay present. Just receiving And then there's metta, a very simple phrase that you repeat as often as you need to keep the mind from being swallowed up by thoughts or memories. Simple phrase you can construct, or something along the lines of, may I be happy, may I feel safe. May I take care of myself? May I feel connected and loved? It's absolutely appropriate to create your own phrase and just use it. Don't be too picky or fussy about it. And just repeat it. concentration is not to push away thoughts or repress them, but simply give you a tool to keep yourself close enough to the present moment that when thoughts arise, you'll have a anchor in real sensations or real something outside of the thoughts to keep you from being swallowed up by the mind's fantasies, memories, daydreams, worries. You don't have to push anything away. Just keep your anchor in mind. And there will come times for everyone where we wake up in a fantasy far away from the present, far away from anything real, a worry, a concern, an event from the day. And that's all okay. Just note whatever has kidnapped your awareness and gently bring your awareness back without adding any judgment feeling good that you're developing a settled mind, that you're developing a tool to allow you to detach 
So for the second part of the meditation, you can, if you like, release, keeping your anchor in mind. And at this point, just allow the mind to wander amidst or to stay settled amidst all the different sensations that are appearing in the mind. There'll be sounds, body sensations. There'll be feelings, both physical and emotional, especially. For example, if we're anxious, we might feel the chest tighten or the muscles in the back of the neck contract. The breath become slightly baited. There'll be closed eye lights behind the eyelids, sounds arriving, passing. And eventually what will arise is complete creations by the mind, fabrications, high visual and auditory thoughts. They can be memories, plans, worries, daydreams. <clears throat> and at this stage, rather than just allow them to be on their own and focus on the breath or an anchor, what we do is we allow them to be there, but we now go and we investigate how each thought affects our experience. So, for example, if you're sitting quietly and suddenly a thought about the upcoming holiday comes up, just notice, how does that thought affect my breath? How does it affect my body? When I think about that upcoming day, how does it affect the feeling tones in the front of my body? Does my stomach get tight? Does my chest get tight? Or relaxed? How does this thought affect my awareness? Do I feel more tired or more alert when I think this thought? Is this thought repeating or is it just happening once. And don't feed the thought. Thoughts get fed by giving them attention and then they start unraveling with full stories, full narratives, little, little inner movies. So just allow the thought to be there, but don't feed it. Keep observing how it affects your experience outside of that thought. And then eventually allow it to be there and turn your attention back to all the sensations. And another thought will appear.
the mindfulness as a tool to give us an entirely different way to be with all of the products that the mind constantly creates and tries to sell to us. So as we reach the end of the meditation, it's always worthwhile just to acknowledge the virtue of your practice. It doesn't matter whether a meditation is easy or difficult, whether it passed quickly or it felt long and arduous. Taking time to try to cultivate some ease and acceptance of our internal experience gives us tools to be not only develop mental and physical health, which are definite byproducts of a meditation practice, but also if we have some source of comfort or security within, we are much less reactive with others. So it's not just for our benefit that we have a meditation practice, it's for the benefit of the other people and beings we encounter. So your practice is blameless. It doesn't consume the world's resources, it doesn't cause harm, it's available all the time. It's not addictive. So it's worth cherishing. And when you hear the bowl,
try to take the entire length of the sound to open your eyes, first looking at the ground, not around the room. And very slowly open up the eyelids and try to integrate sight into awareness, sharing awareness with body, feeling, sounds. If you open up your eyes too quickly and look around, the rush of visual stimuli will push your body awareness out of the picture. <laughs>